Rude Awakenings, Chapter 14, read by Achan Sutito and Nick Scott. Our two pilgrims, having walked on from Rajgir with minimal possessions, are making for Bodhgaya, where they intend to pay their respects to the site of the Buddha's awakening, and also, hopefully, to meet friends for Christmas. Chapter 14 The Time of Gifts Achen Suchito Christmas Eve The road was taking us out of the realm of nameless villages to somewhere special, Bodh Gaya. Fifteen kilometres south of Gaya, the place where Siddhartha Gautama had his great awakening. In his time, it was a forest grove called Uruvela. He had already mastered the meditation systems of two contemporary teachers and found that, although they led to extremely refined states of consciousness, those states didn't last. Having ascended to higher planes, so to speak, a descent the normal plane of consciousness is inevitable, with no resolution to the fundamental problem of being, that we experience ourselves as semi, but not completely, separate from experiences. Therefore, we can neither ultimately unite with what is pleasant, nor can we be totally divorced from what is unpleasant, nor can we give up the search for happiness in one of these untenable positions as the Buddha commented. Association with the disliked is dukkha. Separation from the liked is dukkha. Not attaining one's wishes is dukkha. In an attempt to snuff out the whole pleasure-pain mechanism, Gautama had resorted to ferocious austerities in the company of five ascetics at Uruvela, nearly killing himself in the process, he eventually had to admit that asceticism was not the answer either. In that moment of recognition, he remembered the ease and peacefulness of a time in his childhood when he had been sitting in the shade of a tree, watching his father at a ploughing festival. Shaded from the blazing sun, with no particular inclination toward this or that, his mind had settled by itself into a state of calm. Might that gratuitous, unforced calm be the basis for enlightenment? The world was benevolent on that day in another valuable respect. A local woman called Sujata, which means good birth, made him an offering of milk rice, which he ate. Although the other ascetics walked off in disgust, he now had both the physical strength and well-being and the mental ease and detachment to collect his highly trained attention and direct it to the roots of the problem of life. The creation of a self that is both alienated from life and besieged by it. Resolving to remain in that very spot until he had discovered an answer, he took up a seated position under one of the common trees of South Asia, Ficus religiosus, subsequently to be honoured with the name Bodhi tree, the tree of awakening. We too had received our share of offerings, the previous night, the relentless road had taken us into Gaya, which is one of the largest towns in Bihar. We had the name and address of the professor we had met on the previous day. The streets were suitably incomprehensible. Asking for directions, we connected to someone who wanted to get us interested in the huge temple to Vishnu in the city, but we eventually shook him off. We hired a scooter and gave him the professor's card. The driver pleaded his absolute certainty as to the destination, 
but we were a long time circulating the back streets and suburbs of Gaia, stopping here and there to make inquiries. Off we would whirl in another direction until the conviction petered out and receive the next set of contradictory instructions. Then, surprisingly, just as I had given up, we got out. The name and the address had coincided with a neat house in a quiet and well-lit district connected with the university. Even more surprising. The person at whose home we had arrived bore the same name, title and address, but he wasn't the man we had met yesterday. He thought he knew him, and thought he lived somewhere over the other side of town. <laughs> Never mind. In terms of archetype, this man fitted the bill, spoke excellent English, and warmly invited us to spend the night in his house. Inside, all was very benevolent. The evening meal was offered and politely refused. Not even some fruit? It turned out that, according to their dharma, the hosts could not eat until the guests had eaten. I explained that my dharma, as a samana, was not to eat anything after noon. Nick, more ecumenical with his precepts than I, obligingly took some milk and biscuits. Hindu-Buddhist dharma was satisfied. We could relax. The daughter was told to heat some water so that we could bathe in comfort. The husband and wife ascertained that we could eat breakfast after dawn. But we emphasised it must be just a little something. We had to leave just after seven in order to reach Bodhagaya in time for the meal that would surely be offered us by Nick's friend at the Burmese Vihara. Katie knows we're coming, said Nick. She's bound to want to look after us. After amiable discussions with the professor, we turned in. They, of course, gave us the front room, and they all bundled up in some tiny room out the back. I could hear the two women murmuring, and woke up in the darkness to hear them whispering excitedly. The clock said 3.30am, and they were starting to prepare the little something. It turned up about seven o'clock, a feast of savouries and sweets graciously served on polished metal platters against the background of faces brimming with joy. This sort of stuff just finishes your thinking processes. You open, you rejoice, you chant, and you eat. Our plans pulled us out of the door an hour later with the thought that a few miles of earnest walking might create the abdominal space needed for the next meal. We didn't get far. A few minutes' walk away we were stopped by a cry, and the original professor came across the road to beg us to enter his house and stay and eat as we had arranged. We regretfully said we, we couldn't stay, we had to get to Bodhagaya, and we'd just eaten and were expected for the meal. Negotiations began. Eventually we settled for a very large glass of special creamy tea and some biscuits in his front room, then waddled out some twenty minutes later with a deadline frenzy pulling us toward our planned destination a few miles south. Nick was in front, his body bulging out of the small t-shirt, the back seam of his trousers split open. I was behind. With the effect of the food and the heat and the traffic, it was difficult to feel composed. It shouldn't be this way. All those sacred relics that I brought from England to offer to take to the holy places had been stolen. Those robbers had left me nothing to offer, except some composure, and I couldn't even make that. Maybe at least we could look a bit tidier. Nick, maybe you could put your wrap on just to cover your backside, at least while we're in the villages. Nick Scott As so often the case on this pilgrimage, I was in a very contrasting space.
I was really enjoying the walk that morning. The day wasn't that hot, and the small road out of Gaia was lined with big trees casting pools of cool shade. But Gaia was only ten kilometres away. We'd already been fed well, and there was no need to hurry. After all, this might be the final lap of the pilgrimage, so why not just relax and enjoy it? The road ran beside the river Falgu, which at that time of year is a wide expanse of undulating sand, with the river, reduced to the size of a brook, winding through it. Between the road and the bed of the river lay grazing land, dotted with occasional big trees. Looking between these and across the open expanse of sand, we could see a line of low hills, another outcrop of bare rocky upland. Such outcrops were a familiar feature now, since we'd left those at Rajgir. These hills ran north-south, with the river at their base. It was all very beautiful, and I felt at ease with the world. We went along at a steady pace with the kilometre posts counting off the distance to Bugaya. The ease and the beauty combined with the steady walking to quieten and centre my mind. We were carrying so little since the robbery that at times like this it could feel like I was floating. We were passing the usual assortment of occasional pedestrians, bicycles, bullock carts and wandering cows. There were few vehicles, just the three-wheeled taxis carrying pilgrims and tourists between Budgaya and the railway station in Gaia, and there weren't many of them. Eventually we caught sight of the Bodhi temple ahead, the top of its intricately carved tower just showing above the trees. That was wonderful. But it was just one more wonder, at the end of a wonderful walk for me. The Bodhi temple, built on the site of the Buddha's enlightenment, is the centre of Budgaya, most of which is Buddhist temples, viharas and other places for visitors to stay. The Burmese vihara was beside the road into town and it was the first building we came to. We turned in at the big gates and asked for Katie. I'd been introduced to Katie the previous summer in England. She was about to leave for India to help with a course in Buddhist studies organised by an American university, and she'd invited us to stay with them. We waited at the gate for her, while several young Western travellers came and went. Then Katie arrived to collect us. About our age, with long light brown hair, an English rose complexion, and a flowing skirt. She was also the first person from home and the first woman we'd really met for two months, so that I was slightly mesmerised as we trooped along behind her. She took us to a modern block of accommodation behind the old Vihara, climbing up two flights of outside stairs to come out onto a wide veranda on the roof. There were three rooms up there, facing a magnificent view across Bodhgaya. They were the best rooms in the Vihara. They also had the only hot showers in Budgaya, and the first we'd seen since coming to India. Our room had been Katie's. She'd vacated it for us. We sat on the veranda enjoying the view, while we were brought tea in a teapot, with milk in a jug, just as in England. There was food too, including very English-looking slices of cake. Katie seemed a ministering angel, an English one, with a very proper accent. We told her all about the robbery, the police, our trials of the past two months. She listened attentively and reacted in all the right places. There's nothing quite like the concern of a sympathetic woman. Katie had encouraged me to get to Budgaya in time for Christmas, and we'd just made it. Tomorrow morning, she explained, there would be a big gathering on the veranda in front of our rooms, to which we were invited. 
It happened each year. Most of the Westerners staying long-term in Budgaya came for a shared Christmas breakfast. At some point, I think it must have been later, after we'd had our first warm shower and rested, we were taken to meet the monk in charge of the Vihara. Venerable Nyaninda was Burmese, probably in his fifties, and was sitting on a chair outside the old main building. This, we soon learned, was where he could be found most of the day, smoking a Burmese cheroot and available to talk to anyone who came by. There are a lot of people coming by at Budgaya, and as often as not he would be sitting there listening to someone's problems. He was a nice man, quiet but affable, with a laid-back and slightly ironic tone to his Burmese English. He'd seen it all from his chair outside the Vihara. He told us that we were welcome to stay as long as we wished, that we should join him for the meal each day, and that we were not to pay for anything while we were there. Achen Suchito We had to visit the Mahabodhi Temple, the shrine at the site of Siddhartha's Great Awakening. Of course, I tell myself, Bodhagaya is just a place on the planet, a scruffy Indian village among a hundred thousand scruffy Indian villages, though marked by its fame with clusters of rickshaw drivers, beggars and the rest. Transcendence is nothing to do with the place, I tell myself. So the brain holds on, grateful for the ordinariness, the dingy chai stalls, the indeterminate drab buildings, defending its right to be rational, wary of any feelings of devotion, not wanting to be overawed. Yet, unreasonably, the heart rises to the sense of the occasion, rises so that all that brain reality disappears, and the sacred is born. There was a descent down the stone steps, and a reluctance to look up at the towering temple. We were in a garden of devotion. Stupas blossomed around the temple like heavenly flowers, and in their midst were Tibetan pilgrims, bowing, releasing thousands of prostrations into the world like seeds of a timeless aspiration. Pilgrims, devotees processing around the temple in robes and rags and jeans, mumbling mantras, whirling prayer wheels. Silently magnetised onto their footsteps, I was in there somewhere. There it was very peaceful, no frenzy, no press of bodies, no voices. Butter lamps in their generations of grease on the forgiving stone, the cascades of wax marking the butts of expired candles, our half-formed prayers, our tattered memories, our flickering aspirations, our gifts, all accepted as they were. There was the Bodhi tree and the Buddha's great listening. Underneath the tree sat the stone slab representing the seat of enlightenment. Between it and the overhanging branches, the space attended. The stream of my heart poured out, this long lifetime journey. Here was the world, the struggle, the burden, and the need to put it down. Within me and around me the whole world was bowing, and had been for so long. Ashoka, the Chinese pilgrims, the Tibetans, the Sri Lankans, the Burmese, the Thais, Germans, British, French, the Americans, all this stuff born out of eternity, trying to find its origins. On that night of awakening, Siddhartha had seen through the picture show of identity. In profound meditation he had witnessed the long passage of his many births, now being this, now being that, 
a dozen births, a hundred births, and the road all those beings had travelled on, weeping and laughing, aspiring and forgetting. The self-perpetuating road of karma or action. How what you do defines you. What you become determines how you see the world and yourself, and how that world and self appears determines how you act. To reject the process, to think of getting off the road, is just another road, another becoming, another birth. Knowing there's no person on the road, that is awakening. We did some chanting, I remember that, and then we went back. Hawkers were trying to sell us postcards and junk. It was almost a relief to get back to the defined grubbiness of Bihar and then back to the Burmese Vihara and the atmosphere of the West. Easy conversation, shared attitudes, hot showers and Christmas Eve. Katie and Mary, Pat, who had been a bhikkhu in Burma, David, Bill, who translated Tibetan texts, and Robert, the head teacher of the study group staying at the Vihara. A strange comfort, that of familiarity. Nick Scott Christmas Eve was also the half-moon, so we sat up until midnight meditating in the Vihara shrine room. Next morning, I got up late to find that things were already happening outside on the veranda. Ajahn Suchito was there, helping lay the mats and distribute the cushions, so I went out to join him. Then we sat outside our room as the people arriving for the Christmas breakfast were introduced to us in turn. I was surprised to see how many Western residents there were, as well as those running the Buddhist course and a few of the students who had stayed on after. I remember an Englishman, half Indian by birth, who was involved in a Buddhist aid project, working with the local people. A couple of Italians running a cafe for Western visitors, and two Americans studying art at the Tibetan monastery, as well as quite a few others. Most had already heard about our robbery, and it was their main topic of conversation. Everyone who came brought contributions to the meal. Slowly, a sea of dishes gathered. All things we hadn't seen since England. There were savoury egg dishes, topped with mushrooms or broccoli, fruit flans with whipped cream, chocolate cake covered in melted chocolate, a big platter of cheeses, nuts, fresh dates, and of course, mince pies, Christmas cake and Christmas pudding. My attention was increasingly distracted by this growing sea of wonderful food, so that I hardly noticed that everyone also brought presents wrapped in coloured paper, which were put in a big pile on the far side of the food. Of course I overindulged, but it was a glorious meal and full of laughter and happiness. When we'd finished, one of the several children there was given the job of handing out the presents. We'd been told that it was the tradition for everyone to bring just one present. They'd all drawn a name from a bag the week before to find out who their present was to be for. A lovely tradition in which everyone would get something. And we didn't mind in the least that it wouldn't include us. We just felt we could sit back and watch. However, the first present the little girl picked up had one of our names on it and then so did the one after next, and then another, and yet another. There were big ones and small ones, 
each wrapped in different coloured paper, and the little girl tottered back and forth with them all, making a new part in front of us. Half of the presents were for us. Everyone's attention turned to this growing pile and to us, but we were initially too stunned to do anything about it. We just let the presents mount up, with bemused smiles on our faces. Eventually, when we began to unwrap them, we found that inside were things to replace those lost in the robbery. There was a sleeping bag, water bottles, clothes, two sleeping mats, a bottle of mosquito repellent, anything anyone had in their possession that they thought we might need. Even a Swiss army knife for Ajahn Suchita. Many of the gifts we'd never have been able to buy in India. I was in tears by the end. And that was just the beginning of the generosity we received in Budgaya. Some at the meal hadn't been part of the arrangements of the night before. Katie had got us to tell her in detail what we had lost and then she'd gone round telling the others. So they wanted to know what else we needed. Over the next few days, various other things arrived. Even a new arms bowl for Ajahn Suchito, and by the time we left Bugaya, nearly everything we had lost had been replaced. We were even offered a water filter, like the one I'd been carrying unused, for Ajahn Suchito for the past two months. But thankfully, he turned it down. Ajahn Suchito Christmas Day The time of the great gift Overwhelmed by all the generosity that had been shown us, I wonder why it had taken so long to live in faith and trust people's goodwill. Such an opportunity had been provided by the robbery. It had made us more fragile and open, and hence more capable of living as the salmon should. It was a dumber gift. My robes were now complete again, Venerabunyaninda had given me a special Burmese Sangati made of hundreds of tiny patches. So now, in the place of the Buddha's enlightenment, how could one not go for alms? It would be a way of giving myself. The road outside the Vihara was open and waiting. Bhante loaned me an alms bowl. I unwound my bandages and let my patched-up feet be naked with white bands showing where the straps of the sandals had screened them from the sun. My scarred skin was so white in the dust. I was too big, too special, too delicate for the raw gaze of the streets where gnarled, grey-skinned women squatted and begged. I felt so self-conscious. But I stood with my lowered head a few metres away from the fruit stalls or chai shops while the seconds beat in my pulse. When it counted to thirty, I could move on. Sometimes the chink of a sugary snack or the softer sound of a pastry hitting the bowl would let me off early. Occasionally a westerner would give me a cake or a banana with a smile. Then there'd be coins. Fifty pice pieces. So when I got back to the gates of the Vihara, I gave the old women beggars the money and some of the food. The rest of the food I'd give to the bhikkhus, my brothers in the holy life. On another day, I wandered on my arms round south through Bodhagaya, going slowly past the market stores. Nothing happening there. And along the dung-strewn road out of the village, Somewhere I came across a settlement in the dust, dry, mud-walled shelters crouching on the earth, with a few brick houses among them. Narrow winding paths with children playing 
half naked, hair matted with dirt, and a few old folks squatting. My body felt completely out of scale. Even my arms bar was too much, but this time I'd been given another one. It was a stainless steel bowl made in Thailand, and it was of better quality than most Bihari villagers' household goods. But the villagers didn't mind that I was special. They stopped me. The old folk with their friendly inquiries, the children open-mouthed, and they brought rotis and rice. A child came running after me as I was walking away. When I stopped and bent over, she stood on her toes to heave a roti over the lip of the bowl and into it. Her face was glowing with joy. The road took me gently back to the Mahabodhi temple. Overwhelmed again, I could only sit in the garden of prostrations with my bowl cradled in my lap. I chanted a blessing and meditated. Other people didn't mind that I was special. In fact, they seemed rather to enjoy it. Why was I finding being a person such a crucifixion? Christmas was always about visiting relatives reaching out to affirm a connection with small gestures of kinship that get ritualised over the years. So down the road we went to visit monasteries to pay our respect to the elders of the Sangha in Bodhagaya. There was Venerable Panyarama and the Mahabodhi Society, which was the Sri Lankan pilgrim centre. He was busy with people who could only make a little time for us. Then there were the Thai bhikkhus, besieged in the Thai temple, disjointedly polite. I was more or less of their tribe, but having gone native by living off the land did make me seem a bit odd. As for them, being planted in India, especially Bihar, was very difficult. Everything was rough, dirty and exposed, the exact counterpart to what ties hold dear. But we made a good connection with Venerable Jnana Jagat, the head of the Mahabodhi Temple Committee, he was Indian, a Brahmin by birth, courteous and solicitous, and he invited us to share his mid-morning snack of chopped fruit while he listened intently to our tale, expressing profound shame that we had been robbed in his country. He decided to extend his patronage to us, offering us to take us into the temple, up into the top of the towering shrine itself. I left feeling like a favoured nephew who had just received a shiny copper coin. The Buddha described his night of awakening in different ways. One striking account was his recognition of all the forms of doubt and greed and worry as being members of a demon host led by the personification of delusion, Mara. Mara also means death, which in this context is more than an event. Mara is the instinct that identifies us with the cycle of birth and decay. Mara's daughters, part of his support team, are passion, craving and negativity. They're always ready to drag us into some justifiable act of ignorance. A meditator is quickly introduced to this host and generally gets panicked or defensive or gets into a battle with them all of which activities to defend the self merely affirm its existence. Therefore, one is something. And to be something, you have to have something. A sight, a sound, an idea, an opinion, a future, a belief, an identity. Right there is the source of all the longing and the quarrelling which sustains the tenacity of the habitual reactions of the mind. But on that special night, the Buddha didn't react. Neither believing nor rejecting Mara, he said, I know you, Mara, and touched the earth beneath him. I will not move from this spot until I have seen and understood. At that point, of recognition 
and resolution, the long road of his habitual drives came to an end. That spot has been enshrined ever since. The Emperor Ashoka paid his respects and watered the Baldy tree. A temple occupied the spot then, and although the original tree died long ago, cuttings from it and its descendants have sheltered the awakened space ever since. The last one was planted in the 19th century by the British, who also rebuilt the temple. They were the most recent of the long history of attendance to the temple. As Buddhism had waned and was eclipsed in India, pilgrims from Sri Lanka periodically attended to the temple, restored it and venerated it for about 900 years. Then, when Sri Lanka was being colonised and Buddhism dwindled, the Burmese took over the responsibility. Meanwhile, local sadhus and swamis had also used the temple, and it had circumstantially accrued to them. It was only through the efforts of the Sinhalese Anagarika Dharmapala that a legal campaign had, after 50 years, theoretically restored the custody of the temple to the Buddhists. That was in 1949. But this was India, so... A temple to Shiva still stood by the main entrance of the Mahabodhi temple, complete with priests asking for money, and Buddhists were actually outnumbered by the Hindus, including the head priest of the Shiva temple, on the Mahabodhi temple committee. Virabhunyana Jagat clucked and shook his head about it, but what was there to do? And such matters should not spoil the vision of the holy place for us. Silence was then the order of the day when he led us around the terraces of the sanctuary in the evening. And as we walked into that mandala, India for once checked its squalling. He took us up inside the lofty temple where we could meditate and left us there with a sibilant murmur. Above the very place of the Buddha's awakening, I looked over the darkness without and within. What was all this to me? A fragile attention was all I had. The Buddha was an indistinct image, and perhaps all the more resonant for that. He was Tathagata, the one who has come into the way things really are, and that defied all images. When we got tired and decided to leave, we found that someone had locked us inside the temple. <sighs> India, India again. We had to beat on the doors to get the night watchman to let us out. Nick Scott. The next afternoon, I also went off on my own to visit a small stupa that local legend attributes to Sujata, the young woman who gave the ascetic Gautama milk rice just prior to his enlightenment. I followed a path worn by the locals across the sands of the river, wading through the two channels of water up to my knees. Beyond the expanse of sand, and the line of trees on the far bank, and nearly lost amidst the paddy fields, was the slightest of mounds, with a small shrine beside it. Having lit and offered incense to the shrine's small Buddha Rupa, I then sat there contemplating the mound, the villagers working in the fields around me, and some thoughts of my own on women, and how appropriate it was that it was a young woman who broke into the Buddha's fixation on an ascetic path in the story of his enlightenment. Women are good at doing that, breaking into men's absorptions. They can bring us out into a sensitivity to what is going on around us, which can seem quite delightful. The problem for me 
was that I tended to confuse the effect with the cause and fall for the woman. Romance was a cycle I'd got to know too well. How following it brings both you and the woman into a heightened awareness of the present moment and how, when it's over, you come down, much as one does after taking drugs to get the same effect. Except as well as the deflation, there is usually an emotional mess one has to deal with as well. I envied the monks their rules of restraint, with their very clear lines, lines that cannot be continually adjusted, as I was prone to do with mine. It was pleasant sitting out in the fields, warming myself in the late afternoon sun, amusing on the ways of the world like that. Here, so near Bugaya, no one took much heed of me. They were used to Westerners wandering aimlessly about. I remember enjoying being able to do that when I first came to Budgaya in 1973. I spent many afternoons exploring the surrounding area, Indian village life being a novelty for me then. It was on that visit and at the Burmese Vihara that I met my first Theravadan Buddhist monk. He was a big friendly American who'd been ordained in Laos, where he'd spent several years, until he was forced to leave by the encroaching Vietnam War. I was at the Vihara to inquire about the Goenka course that I later did in Rajgir, and I met him in the office. I remember him slapping me on the back and wishing me well on the path. The next time I came to Budgaya, a year later, it was to do two Goenka courses the second, a special one, that he did once a year. It was his own personal retreat, and he allowed a limited number of his long-term disciples to do it with him. I shouldn't have been on it, really. But having applied from Australia, mentioning that I was stopping off at the centre in Burma, where Goenka had himself been taught, they assumed I must be such a long-term old disciple too. The Burmese Vihara of Bugaya in those days had some fifteen meditation cells in the garden, and that's where we were housed. Goenka was in the main house and we never saw him. The small brick cells looked like garden sheds and lined three sides of the garden. We had to share them, two to each, and because no one knew me, I got to share with the other unknown participant, an English guy ordained as a Tibetan Buddhist monk, who'd been allowed on this special course because of his ordination. In our little hut were two low benches, just long enough to lie down on, and between them a narrow space, the width of the door. That's all there was. It was a really small hut. We spent twenty days together in that little hut, me and the English Tibetan monk, sleeping on the benches at night and sitting on them in meditation during the day. We sat, each on our own bench, our backs turned to each other, our faces only a foot from the plain white walls, and we hardly spoke once in the twenty days. I didn't even know his name. The course was intense, and I achieved a level of concentration I'd never managed before. I'd get so absorbed in the technique of slowly sweeping my attention down my body, feeling every slightest vibration, that in an hour my attention wouldn't have reached my toes. That level of concentration brings with it a refined and blissful sense of peace. I really thought I was getting somewhere. Always a bad sign with meditation. After about two weeks, we had a day of rain. Normally, for our twice-daily breaks, we'd all stroll about the garden, or sit soaking up the sun, always in complete silence. This day the rain was keeping everyone in their huts, but I had two handmade Burmese umbrellas that I was taking home as gifts. One, a plain one, I put out for my companion to use, taking for myself the one painted with colourful Burmese designs. 
we both walked round the garden, the rain pattering on the umbrellas, while the others looked on. I was rather taken with being the focus of attention, and went round three times. At the break's end, we returned to the meditation, but just the slight excitement of our little parade had disturbed the balance. The meditation wouldn't go right. I began to panic a little, which of course made it worse. So I tried harder, which made it even worse. The more I tried, the further I got from being able to do it. The ability to concentrate on those subtle sensations had now totally gone. Next day it was the same, and the day after too, and the more it went on, the more fed up I got. I had fallen from heaven, and I couldn't get back. That was to be a cycle I'd go through over and again over the next few years, until I got the lesson and started to allow things to be just how they were. The course finished on the night of the full moon. We gathered that evening in silence in the meditation hall and waited for Goenka. He arrived about ten with a big smile on his face and announced we were all off to the Bodhi temple. Everyone was given candles and incense and we walked together through the empty streets, still in silence. The temple compound was lit with the flickering light of thousands of butter lamps. Others were already there, sitting quietly under trees or doing prostrations towards the temple. We wandered through the grounds following Goenka and then sat in meditation, clustered together under the Bodhi tree, while Goenka did some chanting, his deep melodious voice coming and going in the night air. It was all incredibly uplifting. When we left, leaving our candles and incense alight around the base of the tree, each person did some form of bow. We made an assortment of gestures of respect towards the Bodhi tree, everything from slight nods of the head to formal bows kneeling on the floor. The Tibetan monk did full-length prostrations. As we returned to the Vihara, all as high as kites, we were allowed to talk for the first time. We started hesitantly, but came through the gates of the Vihara, producing an excited babble, and then clustered together in little groups, sharing our experience of the past three weeks. Myself and the monk ended up sitting up talking in our hut most of the night. That is when I found out that his name was Stephen Batchelor, that he was my age, and that he had also come out to India straight from school. He'd ended up in northern India, studying with the Tibetans, where he had eventually become a monk. These courses, this was his second, were his first experience of Theravadan Buddhism. It was Stephen, now a meditation teacher and writer, who introduced me to Katie when he heard about the pilgrimage. They both lived near Totnes in Devon then, a centre for all things alternative and a place where lots of Buddhists resided. The candidate for the Green Party, a Buddhist, got the highest vote for any Green candidate in Britain. He too was a meditation teacher and was coming out to Budgaya in a few weeks to teach two retreats, for which Katie was to be one of the organisers. His name was Christopher Titmus, the Theravadan monk who'd been with me on the meditation course in Rajgir the year before I met Stephen. The Buddhist world in the West could be a small one then. Each morning while we were in the Vahara, we had breakfast with Katie and the others, who'd been running the Buddhist course. Those breakfasts were very pleasant affairs. We'd sit around drinking coffee and munching on toast, marmalade and other delights that the two of us hadn't known for months. The coffee would fuel long conversations about Buddhism, practice and the world. 
our hosts, had also become interested in Buddhism in India in the 70s. Now they were here teaching it to another generation. Now that the course was over, they were packing everything away. They had a library of all manner of books on Buddhism and related subjects, which, to our frustration, we only got to see the day it was being put into cases. The locals who'd been doing the cooking had to be paid and arrangements made for next year. Then the organisers began to leave, most of them off to do some travelling before returning home. Katie was the first to go. Each year she would spend a week on the beach in Puri, the nearest India gets to a seaside resort, before returning to start organising the Christopher Titmus retreat. It was sad to see her go. We both felt a lot of gratitude towards her, but she was very English, and somehow, what with us being English too, we never seemed to get the chance to express it. Our plans to stay in Bodhagaya until New Year's Day and then go to Calcutta to apply for new passports and visas. Nick would try to get his traveller's checks and our airport tickets replaced, and so our time as beings who have no nationality, no permission to be here, and no possibility of leaving would come to an end. Time and the road won't be cheated. You've got to move on. And maybe, with the wondrous gift of all our supplies, we might even complete our original plans. All that was certain was that it would now be a, who knows, pilgrimage. But for now, I didn't feel like going places, limiting my movements to alms-faring and visiting the Mahabodhi temple. I didn't go to the enormous Japanese Buddha, or the Tibetan temples, or the archaeological museum. I wanted to spend some time meandering through the village to be with its ordinariness, to get a feeling for the people, and therefore for myself. There were plenty of pilgrims of all manner and persuasion. Now, in the cold season, Bodhagai was particularly attractive to Westerners, especially as Christopher Titmus made a practice of giving a meditation retreat every January in the Thai temple. It promised to be full, with around 100 people. This year brought the added interest of Andrew Cohen, a self-proclaimed master from America who reckoned himself enlightened and who would be holding teaching dialogues nearby at the same time. The Burmese Vihara also regularly housed retreats headed by Venerable Nyaninda in the more sober deadpan Theravada style. At other times, Bhante just hung out. In the evening, we would be sitting outside in a chair with a couple of bits of wood smouldering in front of him, occasionally poking at them with a stick. Night and day he would be unflappably responding to the various requests, invitations, queries and calamities that came up. He wasn't trying to get everything perfect, but he kept his eyes open and saw what he could do. He'd blend the compassion to respond with the equanimity to stay sane. As for the residents, after the local Bihari folk, the most sizable community was the Tibetan traders. Their simple but clean tea shops were frequented by Westerners in mystically ascribed t-shirts smoking beadies, enjoying the wholesome food. Tibetans are a resourceful folk. They had learned to adapt and to relate to Westerners, who in turn were naturally sympathetically inclined to them as refugees from a holy land. They did a brisk business selling goods on the street. You can never haggle a price with the Tibetans. Compared with the local people, they were quick-witted and bright. While the Indians seemed to be just about getting by, 
the Tibetans got the business. But there was always the sacred power of Tibetan Buddhism. At the end of 1990, out for a stroll, heading for the Bhutanese temple for no special reason, we rounded the corner of the road and were confronted by a loosely defined procession of monks in Tibetan robes. It snaked like a carnival dragon, with a large, bare-chested Tibetan man on a wheelchair at its head, coloured gifts on its back, and cymbals and trumpets bristling from its sides. There were Western lay people in there too. At the gates of the temple it cheerfully swallowed us up without breaking its stride, swept up the temple steps and disintegrated in the main hall. The mass of blood-red and yellow robes with one saffron misfit, something covered in red hair, and assorted humans swirled and settled before the huge bulging-eyed gaze of Guru Padmasambhava. A silent Buddha was in the centre of the shrine, with a Valakateshvara, the Bodhisattva of compassion, to his left, but the Guru on his right was the real host of the occasion. He was brandishing a Vajra to drive away all forms of delusion. Visually the place was vibrating with the suffusions of turquoise, the waves of passionate reds, the jewel adornments of citrus yellow, blue and emerald spheres, cascades of gorgeously arrayed Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, many-headed manifestations and fire-wreathed snarling Dharma protectors. Whose side were they on? In a Vajrayana temple, such discrimination is foolish. All manifestation is void and welcome. How you use it is what counts. Things went into action as the monks arranged themselves in rows and rolled out their grumbling monotones. The chanting was a sea on which the aiding leader rode like Neptune. He was above us on some kind of throne, his long grey hair gathered into a top knot on his head, his face quite serene as his hands turned in circles like the waves. Tea came round in huge kettles and sacramental snacks. The monks supped as they chanted. The Theravadan, there has to be one wet blanket at every party, politely declined. I was in one of the rows near the centre of the action. Looking round, I could see Nick over at the periphery, happily digging into the sacred refreshments. Afterward, as we were making our way back to the Vihara, Nick told me what he had gleaned from the lay people. The elderly sage was Dilgo Kiense Rinpoche, a very high lama, senior of a lineage. He was very ill, and the ceremony was about praying for his health. It was also about bestowing a blessing on the world. The great mounds of fruit and packages of food and tea were being offered to ensure a prosperous new year. We had our own plans to see the new year in at the Mahabodhi temple. It was a full moon, which meant an all-night meditation vigil Another confrontation with the hosts of Mara. Perhaps all this benevolence would have put the host in a good mood. And tonight, we'd also have the added inspiration of being joined by Sister Tanisara from Amrawati and her companion, Nada. They'd come across me that morning as I was meditating in the grounds of the temple after my arms round. It's funny how with your eyes closed you can detect someone in front of you. They were regarding me with the gaze that develops in India, unwavering, yet dispassionate. Then they bowed. When you're travelling, you pour over even the most ordinary letter from home to save the comfort of the familiar. How much more the appearance of words of old friends from that distant life and other identity ago. They both looked crumpled and drawn. I must have appeared rough too. Nick had tightened his belt so far that he'd run out of notches and had been punching new ones for the past few weeks. My waistband had no holes in it, so I registered the changes in the way Sister Denisa looked at me. 
Our words groped towards certainties and information. They had heard something of our recent misfortune, which was the talk, in various embellished forms, of Bordegaia, but I seemed to be intact. They were coming to the end of a briefer, but wider-ranging pilgrimage that had taken in the Tibetan community in the north around MacLeod Gange and some of the Hindu ashrams in Uttar Pradesh. India had visited them in customary fashion, with raw beauty, human turmoil, devotion and bacterial aggression. They had narrowly avoided involvement in riots in Varanasi and stricken with stomach bugs and slightly delirious, squeezed onto a bus to Kathmandu to get some medicine. Still not fully recovered, they then journeyed on to Lumbini and Savati by bus and train and had just arrived in Bodhagaya. Now they were lodging at the Mahabodhi Society where they had met up with some Sri Lankan pilgrims from England who were supporters of Amrawati and who were looking after them well. A meal was being offered tomorrow, which we were invited to join. I played my trump and invited them to take a hot shower in our lodgings in the afternoon while Nick and I went off for a walk. Later we could go to the Mahabodhi temple for the evening meditation. They could get tidied up and then we'd sit up all night together. It was a pleasure to have a puja chanting with someone who knew the words and had a feeling for tone, pitch and devotion. Our voices harmonised and rang against the walls of the shrine. After some meditation inside the temple, we went outside. No one else seemed to be around in the temple grounds. The full moon shone down on this abandoned Eden as we wandered along the stone terraces that defined the bower of the Buddha's enlightenment. Seven weeks he had spent here, in this leafy grove, reviewing the processes of consciousness, of suffering, its origin, its cessation, and the path. I found myself settling beside a pool, in the middle of which, on a giant lotus leaf, sat an image of the Buddha. Light shone on the meditating sage. Around his body were the coils of the giant cobra, whose seven heads formed a sheltering canopy over him. Over two thousand five hundred years ago, on such a night, Muchalinda, the serpent king, had protected the Blessed One from a storm. The others came and joined me. It began to rain and grew cold. We gave the blankets to the women and found some shelter beneath the terrace. Nick had brought some flasks of hot tea and some lumps of jaggery sugar. The rain came down in the darkness and the pool's stillness broke into trembling fragments of light and dark. There was so much rain in this storm-tossed world and so much trembling. Only on the awakened one had it stopped raining forever. He was here, listening. There was no doubt of that. The problem was that none of the rest of us are. We don't listen deeply enough to get past the storm. So, moved by compassion, he decided to teach. He, the Tathagata, is the one who has come into the world for the welfare of beings. And ever since... So much has been said and goes on being said, commented and expounded upon, counteracted, speculated over, proved and rebuffed. The Theravadins had developed their interpretations. A whole range of Mahayanists had their ways. Pure Land Buddhists were taking refuge in the name of the merciful Buddha who would reward their faith with rebirth in paradise. Bodhisattva aspirants were avowing rebirths for the welfare of all sentient beings. Western empirical sceptics stripped away all the ritual and the devotion and dictated that we should rely only on what we could know for ourselves. Some had even sacked the Buddha from authorship of the teachings altogether. And thousands of years later, 
after the suttas and the sutras and the Abhidharma and the great vehicle and the thunderbolt vehicle and Zen and salvation Buddhism, Western Buddhism, Buddhist Buddhism, it is still reigning. In all that splash and fragmentation we forget where awakening comes into the world. Now, as before, suffering and the end of suffering is all I teach. ก็เป็นสิ่งที่ควรกล่าวกับผู้อื่นว่าท่านจงมาดูเถิดโอปานายิก็เป็นสิ่งที่ควรน้อมเข้ามาใส่ตัว